Hey man, it's me, Kevin Smith, the annoying voice of podcasting, and you're listening to the non-annoying Three Guys in a Flick. Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. The show is about to begin. Show me the way to go home. I'm tired and I want to go to bed. I had a little drink about an hour ago, and it's gone right to my head. Wherever I may roam, by land or sea or foam, you will always hear me singing this song. Show me the way to go home. Welcome back. You are listening to Three Guys in a Flick. This is where we review the good, the bad, and the absurd. Tonight's episode... ...is our 100th episode. Congratulations, boys. Tonight's episode... Jaws. Beware... Spoilers. Coming to you from the deck of the Orca, my name is Don, and to my right we have our comic book guy, John. I thought this was just supposed to be a fishing trip. It is, it is. We're just, you know, we have our line in the water, we're just kicking back, having some cold ones. It's going to be a good time. It's going to be a good time. And to my left we have the Professor, Ken. I'm feeling herpy. I don't like the way that chum smells. (laughs) Let Hooper take a turn. 100 episodes, guys. What's up with that? Did you ever think that we would get to 100? Uh-uh. With the same cast? Well, I mean... I thought one of us would have killed at least one of the other person. I, I'm, I'll just say this. I'm shocked that you both haven't killed me. So, uh, saying that, I just want to say thank you. This 100 shows has been fucking awesome. I have a great time with you two clowns, and I can't wait for our next... Well, we've had to keep you around because you have the basement and our wives won't let us record at home. Yeah, well, I got that going for me, which is nice. Caddyshack. Very good. Very good. Ooh, maybe that should be 101. We should review Caddyshack. I like that idea. It's a good idea. Good idea. So tonight for our 100th episode, we chose the classic... Jaws. Well, in actuality, you chose Jaws. Now, why did you choose Jaws? Uh, We had a couple of different options and all very viable for the 100th episode. I think that, um, you know, 100 is a milestone in a lot of things. And I thought that it should be a movie that is probably pretty near and dear to at least one of us. And since the professor has already talked about Raiders of the Lost Ark and we discussed The Crow for you, I thought that, you know, for 100... Let's do mine. So here we are. Jaws, 1975. This was uh, Steven Spielberg's, what, I, would you call it his big break in directing? Or would you call Sugarland his big break? Um, I think Sugarland got his foot in the door and Jaws kicked the fucking door in with the other foot. So Jaws was like a shotgun blast to the door. Widely accused of being the birth of the summer blockbuster. 
you know, at the time, the people weren't ready for it. So, well, also, he wasn't the first pick for director. Who was the first pick? Uh, actually, uh, I don't know if the name is out there yet, but there was a gentleman who they did bring in, uh, they being Universal, and he kept referring to the shark as a whale. So they knew right then and there that this was not the guy. So after that, Spielberg said, hey, why don't you guys let me direct this? And they said, okay. And Wasn't he 26 years old? 24. 24 when he did this. Yeah. That is just crazy. A lot of power in a young man's hand. For what they accomplished, it took guts and courage and just sheer insanity to pull off what they actually pulled off. You know what I mean? Jaws is always recited as one of the most difficult film shoots in history. You know, if you go to film school, they're going to teach you about Jaws. Well, this is obviously a movie that's near and dear to your heart. You've been talking about this movie for a while, and you were gracious enough to, not only did we go to the anniversary screening of this movie a little while back, but you took us to the musical called Bruce, which I think we learned a lot about the making of this film. At least I did. I didn't know a lot about it. Uh, And it's just something, you know, when you really get into what they had to go through to make this movie, it's amazing that it even got done, and especially with some of the ideas that Spielberg had, like filming actually out in the ocean i don't think a lot of directors had tried that before no this is uh (laughs) accused of being the first film to do it you know i mean there's a lot of that in the production of jaws spielberg admitted that he not knowing what he you know what he didn't know in making this movie he is courageous that way but looking back at what he knows he says he never would have done it if if he knew what he was getting himself into if he if he knew then what he knows now he probably wouldn't ever do it and i mean can you blame him i mean yeah he was he was just young and ambitious yeah but fucking pulled it off took the bull by the horns yeah took the shark by its tail or its teeth or its teeth there you go and absolutely and the effect this movie had on the people that saw it, I guess uh, the numbers of people who people came became f- afraid of the water and afraid of shark attacks, things like that, just went through the roof after seeing this movie. Oh, yeah. It's generally believed that you have an entire generation of people that have suffered from galeophobia. And what is galeophobia there, Professor? In an, an irrational fear of sharks. Oh, interesting. Why is it irrational? Because generally speaking, great whites, great white sharks do not behave in this way. Great white sharks in general, they are standoffish, and they are they are more likely not to attack than they are to attack. I can think of four motherfucking great whites right now that would disagree with you, good sir. <laughs> Once again, generally speaking, I do know that Spielberg and the writer have both said that they have some regrets about this movie in that it really raised the amount of people hunting sharks. Yeah, at the time it did. And uh, the Great Whites at some point were an endangered species. If not, they still might be. I believe they still are on Um, the list, but they're doing a lot better. uh, Peter Benchley, the author who wrote the book, he became one of the biggest uh, white sharks advocates after this film because of the backlash and, and what people, you know, did because of the movie but um yeah they definitely he's uh spielberg has gone on record saying yeah that's the one thing he kind of regrets about it but other than that it gave him final cut you know what i mean at 24 years old working for universal studio gave him final cut that's fucking impressive yeah what the hell is that about how do, how how does he land that well summer blockbuster 
I mean, he he changed the game. Yeah, he really did. And for as much shit as he gets, because uh, I hear people talk shit about Steven Spielberg all the fucking time. For me, I saw Jaws when I was eight years old. I saw it at the Shoreline Public Library on VHS. Did you wait your pants? Uh, yeah, I had to watch it in sections. You know, uh, I couldn't get past the first scene. And it wasn't because the shark was ate the girl and it was all bloody. It's because of what we didn't see, right? And then true that at the time when I watched it, I wasn't aware of the blockbuster thing or or what Jaws did to a nation. I just knew, you know, uh, it wasn't safe to go into the water. And there's this movie about a shark. But when I watched it, something happened. It was that moment when I realized how fun a story can be, or how engulfed you can get or how you can just disappear for two hours and seven minutes i was so mesmerized by the storytelling itself that it wasn't until years later that i realized what kind of impact it actually had on me right um as i grew up i wanted to make movies and i tell people making movies all the time i said less is more where did that come from jaws you know what i mean looking at every frame that you uh, shoot to make sure you're picking the right one because sometimes the shark only looks good at 12 frames and not 24 frames. All of that came from Jaws. You know what I mean? So it, it's a huge impact. Another thing that I heard that this movie kind of introduced to the world and what, you know, I, I never knew about the shark mouth, you know, malfunctions and issues that they had until probably like 10 years ago when I started hearing about that stuff. But this introduced us to the perspective from the villain from, you know, the anti-hero in the movie in that, you know, this went on to like Halloween and other movies giving us the eye view from the bad guy. Oh, the amount of movies that have been inspired by or have drawn uh, a parody or, or anything like that from Jaws is, I mean, it's countless, really. Well, let me ask you this, Don. You mentioned earlier that you've wanted to make movies and you've, you've made a lot of great short movies out there is there a point you know which you stop seeing this movie more as just entertaining and start looking at it from a director standpoint or do you still just get enthralled with this movie when you watch it it's both is it man it's both because i appreciate how the story is told uh i appreciate that the movie is about uh, a shark coming to a small island community and terrorizing it and, and on the surface, that's what the story is about. But the story is actually about human relationships and uh, how, you are, how you deal with uh, an insurmountable uh, feat ahead of you, right? And it's told so beautifully, in my opinion, that uh, John's, for me, is a perfect film. So, you know, there you have it. Released on June 20th, 1975, Jaws was directed by Steven Spielberg. It was written by Peter Benchley and Carl Gottlieb, based on the book Jaws by Peter Benchley. And it stars Roy Scheider, Robert Shaw, Richard Dreyfus, Lorraine Gary, Murray Hamilton, and a bunch of other actors. How'd this movie do, Don? Uh, this movie was made for $9 million and it brought in $477 million. But I'm not sure at what date that $477 million is. I saw a recent review of this movie talking about uh, how it's done. And they, they quoted $477 as the current worldwide box office numbers. 
Well, for a 1975 movie, that's not too bad. No, not at all. It set a record until it was broken by another movie two years later. Which movie? Really? You know, did uh, did you ever see the promos for it on like a making of or anything? R two's holding a fucking fishing rod. No, I don't remember that Bruce. at all. Oh, that's yeah. awesome! And Spielberg took out an ad and said, "Congratulations, George." So yeah, that's that's hilarious. Now, one thing I have read about this movie: the nine million that was the budget for this movie, they were way over budget. They were what four million was the original budget? Uh, like I believe it was around four. And they were supposed to make it in how many days? 62 days, 64 days, and it turned into 129? 59. 159? Yeah, I guess at the end, Spielberg thought that the cast and the crew were going to revolt. Where was he when they filmed the final scene? He was on a plane with Richard Dreyfuss going back to Los Angeles, and that had become... Uh, for a while at least, uh, Spielberg's thing. He was He's never there for the last day of production. Speaking of Spielberg, he used some film techniques. And normally when I watch a movie, it's, you know, Don, you're the one who usually mentions film techniques. And, and Ken, you talk about your favorite type of scenes and things like that. I usually don't notice that. I just am there for the content. But one of the things I definitely noticed, and I had to go back and do a little research on, was the idea of treading water. I guess Spielberg used a lot of water shots where he tried to make it look like the camera would give the point of view that the audience is treading water to give that sense of uneasiness. Yeah, he said that uh, when you're in the water, you're not three feet above the water looking down on you. Uh, He wanted the audience to be at eye level. So Bill Butler, the uh, cinematographer, came up with this uh, water box that they created. And they would put it in, and depending on the tide, uh, would give you that that look and feel of being half in and half out of the water as if you were treading water. Did you know that most of Jaws was a handheld movie? I did not know that. I wasn't aware that most of it was, but I knew that some of it has to be because when you look at all of those shots throughout the movie, there's no way it's not, you know, it has to be a handheld. Yeah, Bill Butler goes to Spielberg and says, I think I can I can handhold this movie uh, and use my knees and, and this, that to counter for the, the waves. And Spielberg was like, I really didn't want to shoot a handheld movie. Right, because you're out on the ocean. Right. But Butler did it, and what we got was a mostly handheld shot of Jaws. Speaking of the shots, obviously a lot of it's filmed on the ocean. Don, I think you're going to know the answer to this. Do you know why they specifically chose the Martha Vineyards area? I do know that. Do you, Professor? Yes, sir. What's the reason that you have? Uh, because it was the only place that Spielberg could go 12 miles out to sea, look in either any direction and not see land, and have a 30-foot sandy bottom at the bottom for the sharks. That's slide. exactly what I was going for, was the 30-foot <laughs> bottom, which is interesting because they wanted to be able to touch the bottom to have the cranes and everything be able to work and, with it. And I tell you, when you watch this movie and they're on the ocean, it looks like there's no one around. Mm-hmm. Until the very end, then you see the land. Which but. Spielberg does on purpose to make to make us feel anxious and isolated. Absolutely, masterful filmmaking. Just feel like he thought of everything when he was making this movie at twenty four. Mm-hmm. Except so. that, uh, well, it wasn't his fault that a mechanical shark that's tested in freshwater should probably be tested in in salt water as well. They didn't have any time. I mean, yeah, they all knew that, but uh, the first time they put Bruce the shark into the Nantucket, sank. They had to have the frogman go get it. Mm-hmm. And who is Bruce named after? Spielberg's lawyer, because 
All lawyers are sharks. He had a second nickname. What is Bruce's nickname? The big, uh, the great white turd. The great white turd. I do this all fucking day, bud. Because he kept breaking down, I guess. Yeah. Well, yeah. So I've been trying to bring some trivia questions every episode for us, and I thought it'd be interesting to do a little bit of great white trivia. Uh, So let's start off with true or false. Great white sharks existed before the dinosaurs. I'll go true. Uh, I believe that is true. That is true. They existed before the dinosaurs. In reality, how many cases have there been of great white attacks on humans? Under 100 or over 100? Uh, I think it's under. I'll go over. It's actually under 100. So, Professor, earlier you were talking about how there really hasn't been a lot of uh, shark attacks, especially great white attacks. Yeah, it's, it's well under 100. Are great white sharks cold or warm-blooded? I'm going to say warm-blooded. They're cold-blooded. Most sharks are cold-blooded. Great white sharks are warm-blooded. Oh, I fucking got one wrong. This allows them to live in both warm and cold water, and that's why they can travel more than other sharks. Wait, does that explain Jaws the Revenge? True or false, shark embryos will eat their siblings in the womb. Oh, that's fucking true. True all day long, baby. Sure. Yeah, they will eat each other in the womb. Uh, Survival of the fittest. How many teeth do mature great white sharks have? Isn't it? I think it's like 75. No, no, no. It's like 300 and 380. Professor, you got a guess? Man, I heard the number years ago. I don't know what it is anymore. Well, I know it's double set, like double rows of teeth. Uh, they have about up to 300 teeth. So you were closest, Don. Fuck, yeah, Well, he was. he was because I didn't guess. True or false? When John Williams brought the, was it called the Thump Thump song? To Steven Spielberg the first time, Steven Spielberg laughed and wanted to hear the real song. That's 100% true. That's totally true. Absolutely true. Yeah. What do you think about Spielberg with his uh, soundtrack on this? Uh, The soundtrack to Jaws, I think, uh, completely is the missing puzzle piece, right? Where would this movie be without it? It wouldn't. Uh, it wouldn't be where it is. I can fucking tell you that much. For sure. When I was watching it uh, the other night for the billionth time, I thought to myself, Jaws is one of the only movies that I can think of that if you took out all of the dialogue, you would still know exactly what's happening and you would still feel the feelings that you feel during this movie. Man, I like that. That's good. But you're absolutely right, too. And they've done, like, with test groups of taking the music out completely different effect it's not the same movie it lacks the suspense that it would with the music this is uh one of my top two favorite john williams scores and you know he's had so many with spielberg and which which is just so fucking brilliant and when you think about you know big spielberg movies and you think about you know the music that williams has done for spielberg it's like holy shit this guy is a freaking iconic legend he 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 is the he's godzilla yeah absolutely if i had to and we've talked about this before like top 10 iconic songs that you 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 hear you know exactly what it goes to this is my number one that thump thump song you can't hear it and not think of is that like the shoot shoot song it's called the uh shark theme well actually they refer to it the nickname is thump thump who's they uh, Spielberg and Williams. Nah, I don't think they did. Oh, it's in my 
trivia. <laughs> Did you read my trivia? So, you know, with, with Williams being with Spielberg, uh, we were talking off the air about how many uh, different projects Williams and Spielberg have worked on together. And we only came up with three movies of Spielberg's that Williams did not do the soundtrack for. Yeah. Crazy, right? Yeah. If you look at the body of work of Steven Spielberg and only three of his flicks don't have John Williams, well, I mean, that's a collaboration. So, For those of you listening, those three movies are The Color Purple, Bridge of Spies, and Ready Player One. And uh, the rumor is that, that probably he's uh, John Williams is hanging it up uh, with uh, with the completion of uh, Spielberg's most recent movie. I'm going to pull a, I'm going to pull a professor. It's not technically Spielberg's movie. It's a Sam Mendes movie, but you're right. Uh, it's Indiana Jones and the dial of destiny. Is that what it's called? The dial of destiny? I don't know. I think something I just... like that, but he has said he will return. He will come out of retirement. If given the opportunity to do which movie? Uh, the James Bond franchise. Yeah, he wants to do a James Bond franchise. Who wouldn't? So I, I also think that another thing that really works for this movie, without without Spielberg, without Williams, the third and most integral part that makes this movie work so well is the editing. And I don't have that down in my notes. Who's the editor for this movie? Verna Fields. I just cannot get enough of how masterfully pretty much there is not a single wasted shot in this movie well it's because they didn't have any shots to waste really um it is stitched together brilliantly i think i think the jaws is perfectly balanced um it it makes me feel every emotion with the exception of just out downright breaking down and crying right uh the the scene that comes close is uh uh Brody and the kid uh, doing the mimicking thing at dinner. That's the closest thing that'll bring me to tears in this film. But I will. I, but I have felt every other emotion that there is to feel throughout this movie. Not the puppy snuff part. I knew that was going to come up. You never see it. I know. That's what I appreciate. I think about Spielberg. Is you <laughs> he know won't it, show but you don't have you. to see it. <laughs> I do want to talk about casting. Uh, from what I have read and what we saw in that Bruce musical, they really didn't have people casted until right before they started shooting all of the cast. Yeah. And they use a lot of the Islanders as extras throughout the whole movie. Yeah. What do you think of the cast of this movie? This cast is um, fantastic. It what helps you fall in love with this film. Uh, Roy Scheider is the chief. Your everyday guy. Believable. Lorraine Gary as his wife. I mean, I buy it. I buy them as a couple with their two kids living on this island. And then all of a sudden this shit goes down. And then we get the mayor. I thought Murray Hamilton was a fantastic fucking mayor. Um, he's so memorable that uh, we were watching, Elisa and I were watching Stranger Things season three. And Carrie always plays kind of a shitty mayor. And Elise turns to me and she says, you know what? He reminds me of the mayor from Jaws. I mean, come on, man. That's like one of the proudest moments of my life. Is that when you wipe the tear? That's yeah. Well, fuck, there you go. It brought me to tears. Um, And then you have Robert Shaw as the squirrely old captain. You buy 100% and Dreyfus as the biologist. I mean, the cast is just fantastic. 
I heard that you know Roy Schneider and uh, Richard Drivers had done things before this, but they credit them as this is what blew their careers up. Robert Shaw already had a career of doing you know Shakespeare and things like that. What franchise was he the villain in? I can answer that. Really, he was, he was a villain in James Bond. Which one? God, I know you'd ask that, and I actually looked it up. <laughs> Uh, You're such a was dick. He, was he blowhard? <laughs> no. Yeah, he was blowhard. No, he, he wasn't blowhard. Um, heart is what I said. No, it sounded like hard. So we're gonna go with hard. Okay. Uh, from Russia with love. From Russia with love. Okay, yeah. So, <clears throat> but I knew he. At least I get credit for Bond. I yeah. knew he was in a yes, Bond movie. Yes, 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 yes. I'll give you credit for looking up that he was in a Bond movie. Well, I have to agree with you. I yeah. After watching this movie so many times. Uh, I cannot see. I know that originally they wanted a lot of bigger name actors in this. Uh, I heard like Paul Newman, maybe a couple other people. I'm glad they went with the cast that they did. Yeah, everything, the stars were aligned. Everything fell into place. Uh, Jaws becomes one of the biggest movies in cinematic history. It's on so many lists of the best movie, best suspense, best horror, best genre, whatever. Jaws is on that list. And it's funny because I think of it as such a impact to cinema and an impact to me. But yet my oldest thinks it's one of the most boring films that he's ever seen. Are you sure he's really yours? Well, that I, I wonder sometimes. See, that's just messed up. I'm just kidding, bub. You know I love you. The other thing I read, and I think we saw this a little bit in the making of, which is that Richard Dreyfus and Robert Shaw did not get along at all during the filming of this. Right. Which I think translated great to their relationship in the movie. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's 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 all three of their relationships that really make this movie. Yeah. And I think just the fact of Hooper and Quint going back to that was one of the things I loved most about this movie is their interactions. Yeah. In the New England beach town of Amity Island, a young woman, Chrissy Watkins, goes skinny dipping in the ocean one evening during a beachside party. While she is treading water, an unseen force attacks and pulls her under the water. The next day, her partial remains are found on shore. After the medical examiner concludes she was the victim of a shark attack, police chief Martin Brody decides to close the beaches. But Mayor Larry Vaughn persuades him to reconsider, fearing that the town's summer economy will be ruined. The coroner tentatively concurs with the mayor's theory that Chrissy was killed in a boating accident. And Brody reluctantly accepts their conclusion until the shark kills a young boy, Alex Kittner, in front of a crowded beach. A bounty is placed on the shark, causing an amateur shark hunting frenzy, and eccentric and roughened local professional shark fisherman Quint offers his services for $10,000. Meanwhile, consulting oceanographer Matt Hooper examines Chrissy's remains, confirming that an unusually large shark killed her. So this opening scene with this actress getting eaten, uh, I guess she was a stunt woman. She wasn't a typical actress. Right. And how did they set up that scene? Uh, they had her in a harness, and they had two guys on the opposite ends of the beach, and they would run back and forth, tugging her and thrashing her about. Took three days to shoot it. Three days. Did you guys notice that the sun is out? Yeah. During this? <laughs> I always found that curious. The other thing I thought was interesting but was... But ask me if it bothers me. Was, again, going back to kind of filming techniques, they didn't tell her which way or when they were going to thrash her around and pull those ropes. So the reactions they got were pretty genuine. Yeah. 
And originally in the storyboards, uh, you see the shark come out and take her. But Spielberg was like, no, let's let's not show it right away. Mainly because the shark didn't work. And th- this uh, the tension builds oh so beautifully here because you, you have those underwater shots. And we are a good four minutes of stalking before she finally is uh, consumed by the shark. And it only takes not even a minute of screen time before she's gone, and we're just left with the clanging of the bell of the buoy. Uh, Accompanied by that score and the screeches of the violins and everything while it's happening, and then the the, uh, sounds that she's making. Masterful. Oh, yeah. Well, it won the Academy Award for Best Sound, so, you know, that's fucking badass. The next morning when they find her on the beach, I thought this was interesting. Spielberg did not like the look of the fake arm that they were originally going to have in the sand to be part of her body parts. So did you read what they actually did instead? Uh, Yeah, they used a real arm. They actually buried one of the crew members, one of the female crew members, in the sand so they could use a real arm. Yeah, he was all bummed out that the uh, hermit crabs, there weren't enough of them. He wanted way more than that. Do you know how they attracted the hermit crabs? Uh, honey? Was it honey? Money? No. Money? <laughs> well, he was. <laughs> well, they paid them all off? Uh, actually, they poured coffee all over the area. Yes. Yeah, that, I heard To that. attract the hermit crabs and get that. them more active. Yeah. So uh, Chrissy is attacked, and Brody's trying to figure it out. And we are introduced uh, to Brody's wife and his kids. And then he... I, I really like that, the intro of, of the family. It, it's very well done. And I, and I love the framing that he gives when he's pulling out. The little one is on the swing, and then mother sits down in left frame. And we see Brody in right frame through the, uh, the white picket fence doorway frame mm-hmm. with the Amity car. It, it just looks so picturesque. Yeah, absolutely. And so uh, Brody goes into town, and he is informed of a missing persons, and it takes him to the beach. And uh, like you were saying, John, this is where they find the remains, and now he's got to close the beach, right? Um, because he gets uh, word from the coroner that it was a shark attack. And I like this bit because he goes to his deputy, and he says, hey, where do we keep the fucking beach close signs? And he's like, we've never had any. <laughs> So Brody goes off, and in the meantime, we we're introduced to the mayor, uh, and he briefly, you know, he's walking along with Hendrix, and uh, Brody goes in to get the supplies, comes out, turns out um, there are uh, there are a bunch of Boy Scouts doing their mile swim, and he's got to get out there just to warn them. But while he goes out there, uh, the mayor intercepts him on a ferry. And they have this conversation. What did you guys think of this mayor trying not to close the beaches? The initial impression we get from the mayor right away is he's kind of slimy. I got the impression the way he was dressed, the way he looked. Immediately it said used car salesman to me. Like that maybe was his career before being a mayor. And then all he cared about was the money rolling into the city over people's lives. Yeah. But he had the others in with him, right? Because, uh... Carl Gottlieb, the uh, other guy, he's like, you know, we've never had this kind of trouble in these waters before. So, and so Brody reluctantly says, okay, well, okay. (laughs) This scene is just shot masterfully as well. 
you have Brody stepping onto the ferry, and then before the ferry can pull away, here comes the mayor. It pulls up onto the ferry with him, and then they all get out and they start talking to him. And so even though this conversation is happening, I, I believe you have three different camera shot changes, but they're all so brief. And here you have this conversation that's happening, but you have this dynamic background that is moving while our characters stay still and they have their conversation. I just loved how beautifully that was done. It's such a cool effect. Yeah. And, and if you notice, uh, the ferry doesn't get to go where it's going. As soon as they're done with this conversation, the mayor looks at him and goes, okay, you can take, take us, us back, back now. now. <laughs> what a dick. Dick move. So it's the next day, and we're having a lovely day on the beach. And uh, this is one of my favorite scenes because there is so much happening here. Okay? You have uh, a beach full of people, and they're in the water, and Brody is a nervous wreck. Yes, he is. He's super fucking stressed. He has this gut feeling. He knows there's a shark out there, but he was talked into keeping the beaches open. Well, we were already, and one of the great things, you know, we always talk about quick information, give us the characters' backgrounds, and let us move on. We were already revealed that, one, he's a new officer there, uh, the new new captain or chief, uh, originally from New York, so this is like a new job for him here, as well as... He doesn't like the water. He has kind of a fear of water. So already he's got all that going for him, plus now the shark attack. Right, right. I totally dig how we are also gradually introduced to people that we are going to be told to pay attention to. There's there's like five different characters that we're being told to take to pay attention to. You know, it starts out with Alex coming out of the water. He gets another 10 minutes for mom. And then he walks on by, but the camera stays on Brody. He's in the forefront, right frame. And, he, and then the entire left half is a beach full of people taking up the entire, the, you know, the rest of the frame. And so here's Brody responsible, watching over all of these people. I also totally dug how he is in a black shirt. Why is he in a black shirt on a hot, sunny day on the beach? And I feel like that he's wearing the black shirt because, in a way, he's kind of being the bad guy, that he's going to be the one that could quash all of this and shut all this down. And then we keep getting these shots of the woman bobbing out, out, in, the, out in the water. We see the dog playing with the, with the owner. And we see all of these different little people that we're told to pay attention to. And I just love this tension that builds and it builds for like four minutes. Spielberg does this several times in the movie where he builds his tension so wonderfully and he does it over the course of a couple of minutes. Not a lot, but enough. And what really sells all of this is the way that uh, Spielberg and Fields use their cuts. Spielberg would have people deliberately walk in front of the camera wearing different colored shorts to give us perspectives of the different people that we were supposed to pay attention to. And this technique has been um, mirrored thousands of times throughout movies uh, that we see today. Um, fuck, I rip it off all the time. And it's just so masterful. The scene is great. I love that you brought up uh, the idea of this introducing people. I never really thought about this scene as introducing us pe- introducing us to people that we need to pay attention to. I always looked at the scene as, okay, here's the tension, and we've got to figure out, we know something's going to happen, we know the shark is going to attack, 
which one of these people is going to be the victim? Is it going to be multiple people? Is it going to be the lady bobbing in the water? Is it going to be the dog? You know, is it going to be the kid who's kind of out, who wants to go back out into the water with his raft? Who is it going to be? And I thought, you know, the tension of that, just trying to figure out, you know, who do you place your money on? Yeah. And when you watch it, we get a couple of forced perspective shots as well that uh, we have somebody in the extreme foreground as we pay attention to something in the background. And you get that the first time when you get the real estate guy that comes over and he starts talking to Brody. Hey, uh, Marty, I got these cats parking in front of the... And you know that Brody doesn't hear a single solitary word that he says. And I just love these forced perspective shots as well. Just beautifully builds this tension so wonderfully. I like how Brody is that whole conversation is trying to look over the guy's shoulder and keep his eye on the water the whole time. And this leads us to uh, the second death of the movie. Uh, Poor Alex Kittner is just chilling on. Yeah, and right before that, we see even more people go into the water then, right? Because we're paying attention to those few. Then all of a sudden we see a whole bunch more go in and you're like, oh my God, no. Yeah, yeah. And then, uh, so, what did you guys think of this bit? The the kid getting eaten. I'm amazed this movie did not get an R rating. Well, it was 1975, so I'm not. You're not? No. It, uh, but it does have the uh, uh, tag on it, maybe intense for younger viewers. So, mm-hmm. I mean, that's kind of a worrying. Um, this, I think this scene probably traumatized me when I was little. And what does it is... Uh, the old guy? That's some bad hat, Harry? <laughs> that's that's kind of traumatic. <laughs> kind of. Kind of. Did you know that's the name of a studio? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but no, when Alex Kittner gets eaten, we see a couple of frames of what the shark is as it rolls over and you hear all the people on the beach going, uh, you know, did you see that? But even before that, we get the underwater shot, and then the music starts as it slowly close as we slowly close in on Alex's little raft. Yeah, it, it, we know now as the audience, as soon as we hear the thump thump song, that is Spielberg telling us we're the shark, right? We're looking, we're in the perspective of the shark, and we're on the hunt. Uh, to this day, the thump thump or a version of it is represented in so many movies of Here Comes Trouble, right? So. Again, John Williams and Spielberg changing the game. I'd almost say, look at Friday the 13th and Jason's music. That's easily lifted from the Thump Thump song. Immediately after the, the attack begins, we get that famous shot. Uh, it is... It is, there's, is there a name for it? There is. It, and I, I didn't write it down. It, it, it's, it's like a rack zoom shot. Right. Something yeah. like that. Yeah, we pulled it off on a couple of films that we did. Mm-hmm. Uh, fun stuff to do. But uh, but you get that with the score and just the, the disbelief in Brody's face of, did I just fucking see what I just fucking saw? Mm-hmm. Right? And then you have all that blood shooting up and what gets me and what still gives me chills, as the kid is being taken underwater, you can hear him gurgling. And like it hurts. <laughs> you know what I mean? And he fucking dead. So, um, yeah, sorry, kid. Yeah, and just like that, we mm. have victim number three. Mm, sorry, dog. So in the aftermath of all of this, uh, the town is going crazy. The Mrs. Kittner, the mother of the little boy, put out an ad in Field and Stream. Uh, she put a $3,000 bounty on the shark, 
and uh, the the city fathers are meeting to discuss what's going on, and this is where we get to meet Quint. And you know, in meeting Quint, I love, I love how he is brought to us after the after the chalk scratch. Oh. After the chalk scratch and then the camera weaving its way around the room until we slowly fo- p- get pulled into him. Y'all know me. Know how I earn a living. I'll catch this bird for you, but it ain't going to be easy. Fucking love that bit. What I love, besides doing the whole chalkboard thing, is how everything goes silent when Quint is talking. Nobody talks or nobody makes even a noise, uh, you know, bumps anything at all. While Robert Shaw is talking, and he's so mesmerizing in this speech. And right here, this is the this is where the movie is laid out. This is what the movie is about. Twenty minutes in, and you know what the rest of the movie is. Right, we got to get rid of this problem. And Quint is correct. You either ante up now, get this done, or be on welfare for the winter. And that's what the mayor is trying to prevent. But by keeping the beaches open, he's not preventing it. He's enabling it. So after we get that bit with Quint, we get a brief little bit where Brody and his wife are talking, and then we're taken to these two guys out in a little rowboat, and they're talking and whistling and stuff like that. And they're going to a dock because they think they're going to catch something. This scene is so great because this is another example of how, just how powerful music really is and how it enhances what you are watching. All right, so we'll lay this out for you. There's two guys sitting on a pier. They take uh, this one guy's wife's holiday roast. They have to make a fucking joke about it. They throw it in the water with the tire, and they let the tide take it out. And then all of a sudden, it starts bobbing and weaving. And at the same time, we're intercutting with Brody at home doing his research on sharks. Right? So this is a great parallel that's going on. We cut back to the guy's. The tire starts bobbing up and down, and then the score. And at the same time as the score kicks in, the tire takes off. And they're like, hey, it's fucking taking it. It's taking it, right? And then something happens that I didn't expect to happen. Nobody did. When you first see it, you're like, what the fuck? Shark takes the deck, takes the dock with him, right? Takes it out to sea. And what's great about this scene is... We know that there's a shark in the water, but we don't necessarily have to see it because Spielberg says, I'm going to turn the fucking dock around and and I'm going to chase you. And when that dock turns around, you're like, motherfucker. Did you think the guy was going to survive? When I first saw it, probably not. I I didn't think I did either. But, you know, he does. Barely. Um, but it's just so masterfully done that you see this dock closing in and then and then the frantic, frantic yelling from the guy on the dock, just swim, swim, Charlie, swim. And, and it kind of gives us the audience an idea of just what kind of shark we're fucking with right now. I mean, and then and then the music builds and then you see his sneaker not getting get up. Yeah. Right. And then and then he just barely gets up onto the deck and then the music recedes and we see the two of them panting on the dock. And then you see the dock slowly, gently hit the beach. And then we end on kind of a light note joke. Do you remember what it is? 
Was it the next morning? No, nope, nope, same same bit, two guys. Can we go home now? There you go, oh. buddy. <laughs> I was thinking the next morning when uh, somebody is telling Brody the story. That's not funny. That's not funny at all. You can't explain the, <laughs> yeah. the roast. Yeah, totally. And this is now uh, where a bunch of fishermen come and they all go, uh, they're trying to go find the shark. This scene reminded me of... Uh, a shark frenzy, you know, blood in the water, sharks go crazy. They all just a complete frenzy. All the boats and all the people throwing the blood in the water and everything just seem like now the humans have become the sharks. Yeah, it's one way of looking at it. Absolutely. Yeah, I can see that. And, and this is where we meet Hooper. Yep. Richard Dreyfus. Hello there, young fella. <laughs> he gets there and he's kind of chasing Brody around and finally gets his attention and... And I kind of got an immediate uh, camaraderie between the two, you know, or at least a, a, a mutual respect for well, one Well, Brody, another. when he finds out who he is, seems almost relieved. Like He's it's elated. Not, it's not all on him now. You're absolutely right. Brody's trying to be helpful because he, he, he wants to know what Hooper needs. And Hooper's like, uh, I want to see the remains of the first victim, the girl on the beach. And so we cut to the coroner's office. And I don't know if you guys have ever noticed this, but I notice it every single fucking time. And it always makes me kind of chuckle. Hooper's reaction to the remains when he first brings it out. I'm assuming that Hooper thought you'd have legs and a torso and just, you know, bits here and there, but nothing that would fit in a bus tub. And when they pull it out and he looks at it for the first time, there's this look of, uh oh, <laughs> I thought it was kind of a look of don't throw up. No, I, no, I didn't think it was that. That was uh, after he opens, after he looks in it, mm -hmm. but just the sheer size of it. I, he's thinking that can't, that can't be it. There's gotta be more, right? That's all that's left. One thing I loved about the introduction... This was no boating accident. One thing I love about the introduction of Hooper is that, you know, we as an audience don't know anything about what the shark is about, what the shark wants. He's just an eating machine. Hooper gives us insight into this is what the shark is doing. He's picked a territory. He, he is the voice of the explanation. Sure. When local fishermen catch a tiger shark, the mayor proclaims that the beach is safe. Mrs. Kittner, Alex's mother, confronts Brody and blames him for her son's death. Hooper doubts that the tiger shark is responsible for the attacks, and his suspicions are confirmed when no human remains are found inside its stomach after its dissection. Hooper and Brody find a half-sunken vessel while searching the night waters in Hooper's boat. Underwater, Hooper removes a sizable great white shark's tooth from the boat's hull, but fearfully drops it after discovering the partial corpse of local fisherman Ben Gardner. Vaughn dismisses Brody and Hooper's assertions that a huge great white shark caused the deaths and refuses to close the beaches, allowing only increased safety precautions. On the 4th of July, tourists pack the beaches. Following a juvenile prank with a fake shark, the real shark enters a nearby lagoon, killing a boater and causing Brody's oldest son, Michael, to go into shock. Brody then convinces a guilt-ridden Vaughn to immediately hire Quint. So this tiger shark that they catch. A what? Uh, what did you, you, you were talking, we were talking earlier about this. What is the background on this shark? Well, they had to fly it in from Florida. Florida. Yeah. And I guess it was how many weeks old? 
two or three two or three weeks old to the point where it already had started decomposing and i guess all of the guts had come, fallen already down t- close to its mouth and it was stinking something tremendous oh i can imagine and i'm pretty sure they had a paint on the eyes if you look at it real closely it doesn't yeah. really have eyes so i like this bit because the town is relieved and you know we had all of the we had all these shots of the the fishermen going out, and finally someone comes back with a uh, with a, a shark, and you know the first thing that Hooper does is he starts measuring the mouth, and when he starts doing that, I start thinking, oh, this isn't the fucking right shark, you know what I mean? We're we're not even halfway through the movie; it can't be. Um, but no, it's not. And I I kind I like the argument that Hooper gets in with the locals about it, you know. And because they want to believe that it is the shark and everybody on that fucking pier wants to believe that it's the shark. And Hooper goes up to Brody and says, yeah, let's, the, the fact of the matter is the bite wounds don't match. So what I want to do is I want to open this fucker up. Whatever it's eaten in the last 24 hours is still bound to be in there. And the mayor hears this and he's like, you, you guys fucking right here, right now. That's not cool. And then this bit. This bit, o- yeah, this bit always kind of gets me because, I mean, it, it, it's fucked up. Uh, Mrs. Kittner walks up to Brody, confronts him, says, uh, I just heard that you knew there was a shark out there and a girl got attacked, but you still let people go out there, you know? And so she smacks him. And what gets me is when the mayor comes up to Brody and says, I'm sorry, Martin, she was wrong. And Brody's like, no, she wasn't. And that's just got to be so deflating for him. He could have sold that mayor down the river and said, I wanted to close the beaches. The mayor wouldn't let me. But it, he could have. But at that moment, it doesn't bring Alex back. Mm. And so he had to let mom grieve, which was the right thing to do. But him walking away and uh, the score, uh, there's a lot of Star Wars in there and what will ultimately become Harry Potter. So <laughs> during the those fil- horns during the filming mm-hmm. of that scene, yeah, yeah. how many times did that actress have to uh, slap him? Wasn't it like seventeen times or something like that? Yeah, I guess you can kind of notice that even before she slaps him, his face is already a little bit red on that side from the amount of times that that she had slapped him, and I guess she had slapped him at one point so hard that his glasses flew off. Sure. Sure. It's bound to happen. Uh, I guess the actress up until not too long ago, I guess people would ask her to slap them all the time. You know what I mean? Fuck. If I met Mrs. Kickner, I'd let her smack me too. And then we cut to the scene that I was talking about earlier about almost making you cry for me. Uh, Brody's having a hell of a day and he's sitting at the table and his son starts to mimic his movements. And, uh, that was all improvised. Uh, the kid was just randomly uh, following Roy Scheider, and Roy Scheider looked over at Spielberg and said, hey, watch this and do it, and they did it. And Spielberg said, roll the cameras, and they got it. And I think the best part of that entire thing is the very end. And I'm speaking as a father because we've all had those days. He looks at his, his, he looks at his son, he says, give us a kiss. And the kid goes, why? And it, the, it's so simple, right? Because mm-hmm. we need one. And I, I always find that very touching. So good job. Good job, Spielberg. And then we have Hooper show up, and Hooper shows up with wine. He didn't know. Why is he wearing a tie? Because he's trying to make a good impression. He's coming over for, uh, I, I think he's hoping dinner because 
because he's, he's really eats it. Well, Is he, anybody eating that? Yeah, he he's so eats hungry. Food. <laughs> so uh, uh, I like the line of when uh, Brody opens up the wine. He's like, "You need to let that breathe." Okay, then. Yeah, and then Brody just dumps it in. Um, go well, because he's having one of those fucking days. Mm. So it turns out that uh, Hooper has to leave. He's going on the Aurora, a floating insane asylum for 18 months. But he's got to tell his people that they still have a shark problem. And he wants to prove that by going and giving that tiger shark an autopsy. And so they go down there. And the first thing I've always noticed, and again, I noticed it when I watched it, is they're cutting that fucking shark open with a steak knife. Yeah, what's up with that? You see that? <laughs> I, I never noticed that. Yeah, it's fully on just like a steak knife. And uh, all the white pus and gunk, gunk that falls out and turns out wrong shark guys all right so the shark is out there so hey we should go look for him now's a good time yeah would you go out at night in that fog no are you fucking kidding me <laughs> you mean out there in the water well if we're looking for a shark we're not gonna find him on the land yeah but i'm not drunk enough to go out on a boat yes you are it's it was it's good timing on Scheider and Dreyfus. You, you buy their camaraderie, like I said. Okay, good. but look at that gorgeous boat that they're out on. That's not the boat he brought up to the dock when he showed up. That's a good point. He does it. And I love the backstory. Yeah. You rich? Yeah. yeah. How much? Well, personally or the whole family? <laughs> and so that kind of tells you, you know what I mean? Yeah. But yeah, he, his boat's got the sonar, the radar, the lights. And this gives us the audience a little bit of a security blanket feeling. Just a little. Just a little. That, okay, because we got all this technology and the boat looks nothing like anything else that we've seen so far. And we have fish finders and we'll know if the shark is coming and we're they're kind of lulling us into this false sense of security. Until he decides to go in the water. I love that. I'm gonna, <laughs> Brody is so scared. Right? I mean, let's just tow it in. We will. And this bit... Um, That's a gorgeous shot you have up above right before he gets into the water where we have both of the boats. The boat in the background and then the, the partially sunk boat in the foreground. I love that shot. And I love the attention to detail. Dreyfus is uh, getting his breathing ready because he's got to hold his breath for that amount of time. So he does that, goes into the water, and again, just the tension. But you know you're okay because you don't hear what? Dunham. That's right. Dunham. So, um, but what you do find is a big old fucking hole in the bottom of a boat and a big sh- uh, shark tooth sticking out the wrong way, by the way. Yeah. But, you know, whatever. I know you guys love it when I bring up foreshadowings Damn in it. a movie. But I almost felt like... This boat, the way it was sunk and the way it was sitting and the way it was destroyed was foreshadowing foreshadowing what was going to happen to the orca later. That we knew now, even on a boat, our heroes are not safe. I could see how you would think that. I guess this scene with uh, Hooper underwater uh, and we get the big jump scare of the head bobbing into the little porthole. Uh, the first time Spielberg filmed it and showed it to test audiences, he didn't get the jump that he wanted. He wanted just a little bit more film. Right. Yeah, right. he filmed it in a swimming pool from what I've read. Uh, Verna Field's swimming pool, the editor. Do you know what they poured into the water to give it that murky look? Milk. Yeah, milk in the water. But when it was added and it was in there, that was the scene that, you know, when you watch clips of 
uh, reaction videos or whatever, people are jumping out of their shit when this uh, scene happens. And so uh, they tow the boat back in. And they're trying to convince the mayor, you got a shark problem on your hands. And, and they it- and they are, you know, they're pleading with them. You know, we got to we gotta close the beach and we got to hire someone to kill the shark, right? And uh, the mayor is so deflective. You know, he immediately... Well, show me the tooth. Yeah, and uh, you don't have the tooth? I had an accident, right? Um, but it's the, the back and forth between Dreyfus and the mayor that I really like. And then the fact that finally Dreyfus is just like, fuck it, I, can't, I, you know, I can't argue with this guy because he's not listening. Um, One of the, you know, there is obviously, we mentioned it earlier, there's a book version of this movie that came out, I think, before the movie. Or did they release it around the same time? No, the book came out first. Uh, And in the book version, it goes into a little bit more detail about the mayor. And I don't know if they really want us to kind of, you know, they would have told us this if they wanted us to accept this. But in the book, the mayor was being blackmailed by the mafia and he was being forced to keep the beaches open. Yeah. In this movie, is it just, do you think just because he's an idiot? Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't, I mean, it doesn't matter because we're not told in the film anything about the mob. Mm -hmm. So uh, we know that this guy is just a fucking greedy asshole. So the beaches are going to stay open. And now we see boatloads of tourists coming in for the 4th of July weekend. And we have such a happy tune from John Williams and, and everybody's coming in and we kind of get this montage of Brody and Hooper trying to get ready. And Hooper's on the phone with the Institute saying, why do I got to go to Brisbane? I have a great white right here. So he gets to stay. Brody's trying to get more men, trying to get more patrol. And then finally, it's the 4th of July, and we are on the beach. Peter Benchley, this is where he makes his cameo. He is the interviewer. He was actually the guy who wrote the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, the mayor is bad news when he goes up to you while you're sitting on the beach, and he says, why are you not going in the water, right? And the family's like, because uh, we just put on sunscreen. And he's all... Go in the fucking water. Yeah, he's, please, get in the water. And so they go into the water, and then everybody starts to go in the water. You start to have this false sense of security, and, and you think everything is... Because you have all these boats on the outside with nets and uh, Coast Guard people, and you got Hooper out there with his fancy boat. But at that moment, when the, old, when the older couple stand up, and then you see, oh, then there's children, and you watch the five of them walk to the water, you're thinking, there are... It's a death sentence. <laughs> That's what it feels like. It's like, oh my God. But then everybody else gets up and they all go into the water. I'm right back to at this point thinking, okay, which one of these people is going to get eaten? Which one's next? And so Spielberg doing a masterful job as per fucking usual, uh, we get our underwater shots and we got people frolicking and we're cutting from this part to this part. And what do we not hear throughout this entire scene? Exactly. And I never thought about this, I think, until Don... That you brought it up, which is, we don't hear our thump thump song, right. even though we see a shark fin, we don't hear the song. Right, and this goes on for five minutes. Yeah, we get five minutes of tension building. When is the shark going to reveal himself? And so uh, it turns out that it are these two little kids. And well, before that, the fact of when someone yells, I think that woman yells shark, or someone yells something, shark. and everyone starts rushing. Uh, was I wrong? Did an older gentleman 
get trampled? Did throw a kid off a raft and grab the kid's raft and start swimming in with it? Yes. I mean, these people were crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It was pure hysteria. Yeah. I mean, it was going crazy. So it turns out that this was a cardboard fin. He made me do it. And it was these two little shits. How? Okay. If I'm the Coast Guard. And I see this fin going, why am I not shooting immediately? I don't know. I was know. thinking, too. All of those guns out and nobody was firing? I'll tell you what. Those two little motherfuckers are fucking lucky. All right? I hope their mom kicked their ass. I hope so, too, because that's just fucked up. Some guy, uh, some guy's pacemaker stopped working. You had a couple of minor injuries here and there. And then, all of a sudden, we cut to the pond. But before we got to the pond, uh, as people were going into the water... Mike, Brody's son, and his buddies were going to take their boat out, but Brody says, hey, can you go to the pond? Mm-hmm. Okay. Is this one of the- Do it for the old man, all right? Was it, is this the first time we got to see the shark, or was that earlier when the boy got eaten, and it came we up kind of sideways? We haven't seen the shark yet. We haven't seen the shark, because when they go towards the, you know, the lady's looking and sees, you can kind of see the silhouette of the shark under the water as it goes underneath that little bridge into the pond. Well, I thought that we had two fins. We, we had the dorsal fin, and then we had the tail fin. We right. had that first, but then you see the profile of it uh, from above. Um, well, so the shark goes into the pond, and uh, you, now we have our music. We have our tune, and uh, it you have the kids in the foreground. You have the rowing instructor uh, in the middle, and behind him you have the fin and kind of like a hump. Of, of the shark rushing at you. Um, and <laughs> somehow, uh, I always thought that the way the shark bumps them out of the boats was kind of slow and just kind of happens. But anyways, as the... Uh, hey, guys, you okay over there? <laughs> I can't do nothing. It's all fucking tied up. Uh, as he's trying to get back into his boat, you, you see the shark silhouette. You, he comes up, you see him, and then the guy goes under... And then uh, it cuts back, and you, the shark is a little bit of out of the water, but biting the guy. Just a brief moment. It's frames. You know, it's not even a full 24 frames. Uh, and then you see the leg go down, and then the point of view of the shark swimming past. Uh, Michael. And takes yeah, off. That, that, that tilted camera shot. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. There is a deleted scene where the shark is swimming with the instructor in its mouth, and he reaches and pushes Michael out of the way. The instructor does? Yeah. yeah. But Spielberg said it was just too bloody, just too much at this point, which goes back to less is more. And this is victim number five. And now we get Michael back to the beach. We find out that he's in shock. Uh, They're at the hospital and Brody's had enough. Fuck this, right? Well, this is where the mayor apologizes to. Kind of. He says, you know, I, I had family at that beach too. Yeah, and... If you notice, uh, as he's signing it, the look of disgust on Brody's face while he's watching this, and then after he hands it to him, right before he leaves and rips the curtain open and walks off in a huff, the look of disgust on Brody's face is fucking priceless. You know what I mean? And while he's walking off, we get the monologue or off-screen voice of Quint telling us, $300 a day, whether I catch him or not. So now, we've hired Quint, and we're going on a fucking shark hunt. There's one moment in the hospital that I also appreciated. It's right before he uh, Brody gets to Vaughn, and he is telling the wife, why don't you take him home? Home New York? No, home here. 
Yeah. And I thought that that is a, a, a strong moment that shows the conviction that Brody has for, for him wanting to get to the bottom of this, and he's not leaving. He's not backing down from this. Agreed. I want to talk about how we have uh, Brody and Hooper going to see Quint, and Quint wants to have nothing to do with Hooper. Tie me a sheep shank. <laughs> and then when he ties it, he doesn't even look at it. He doesn't even it. look. I he know. just throws it away and discards it immediately. You and know he what? grabs his hands to look at his hands. I don't need this. I don't need this working class hero crap. You know what makes Quint a uh, hero of mine? As he's stripping or as he's boiling the jaws. Do you see what kind of ketchup he has on the fucking shelf? Heinz. There you go. And his hands, My are, man. His hands are all bloody, too. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> I just love this moment, how... How they're going back and forth with each other. Yeah, absolutely. And then finally... Uh, uh, and then you have the hierarchy established. You know, th- this this is my expedition. Right. And then, no, I... And so they're... they're <laughs> your charter, your party. My vessel. And on my vessel, I'm captain. That's right. And this is just the beginning of Quint giving uh, Hooper a hard time throughout the whole thing. Because now we cut to them getting ready to leave. And Hooper's got all of his gear from the ocean... Uh, Oceanographer Institute, whatever. And Quinn walks up. What are you, some kind of half-ass astronaut? One part that I really liked in this whole scene of them getting the boat ready was when the cage is being put onto Quint's boat. And Quint looks at Hooper and says, you're going to go in that? And then he starts singing that song. And what was that song? Farewell and adieu to you fair Spanish ladies. Farewell and adieu, you ladies of Spain. And then, uh, you know, he continues to give Hooper a hard time, and then he sees Mrs. Brody, and he decides to give her a hard time. That limerick he said was just for her benefit. Did you guys catch that? Mm -hmm. Here lies the body of Mary Lee, died at the age of 103. For 15 years she kept her virginity. Not a bad record for this vicinity. So we are at a minute 12 into the movie. And then from here on out, we only have our three characters for the rest of the movie. And this is the point where I like to say that Jaws can be two movies, right? The first hour, you have a suspense, uh, drama, and in the second hour, you have an action-adventure chase film. Exactly what you're saying. I felt like it became all of a sudden, now it's a thriller. Now it's a suspense-filled thriller of a movie. Despite tension between Quint and Hooper, they set out with Brody on Quint's boat, the Orca, to hunt the shark. While Brody lays down a chum line, Quint waits for the opportunity to hook the shark. When the shark suddenly appears behind the boat, Quint estimates that it is 25 feet long and weighs 3 tons. Harpoons it with a line attached to a flotation barrel, but it pulls the barrel underwater and disappears. At nightfall, Quint and Hooper drunkenly exchange stories about their assorted scars, and Quint reveals that he survived the attack on the USS Indianapolis. The shark returns unexpectedly, ramming the boat's hull and disabling the power. The men work through the night, repairing the engine. In the morning, Brody attempts to call the Coast Guard, but Quint, who has become obsessed with killing the shark without outside assistance, smashes the radio. After a long chase, Quint harpoons the shark with another barrel. The line is tied to the stern cleats, but the shark drags the boat backward, swamping the deck and flooding the engine compartment. 
Quint prepares to sever the line to prevent the transom from being pulled out, but the cleats break off, keeping the barrels attached to the shark. Quint heads towards shore to draw the shark into shallower waters, but he overtaxes the damaged engine and it fails. So now we are on the boat, day one. And this scene has always stuck in my head. And it's the tension and it's the music. It's the way that Quint kind of reacts to what's going on. So Hooper drives the boat. Brody is just kind of the deckhand or does whatever needs to be doing. And right now he's chumming or whatever. And uh, has his old spice. I love that with the rag. (laughs) Talk about taking you back. Right. Yeah. So we, uh, Quint's sitting in the chair and I never realized that I guess you can fish for sharks. Mm-hmm. You know, and I know, right. That's it's exactly the way they do it. Yeah, yeah. And, and I never really put that together. And I think what I always loved about this bit is we, uh, Brody is trying to learn a knot and trying to tie it, but he keeps failing at it. And, uh, Quint's having a good old time and, uh, Hooper's just looking out, reading a magazine, whatever. And then, out of nowhere, ever so slightly, the reel moves just one click. So, yeah, so you have you have the reel in the foreground, and you have Quint in the background. Eating his crackers. Uh-huh, and, and it's in the middle of, of, of the cracker crunch. You know, he hears a click, and then the two more little clicks right after it. So it's like click, click, click. And, and his eyes go down to the reel, and... uh he starts putting on his harness. He straps himself up. And during this whole time, Brody's still trying to do the thingamadoodle. And then he grabs the rod. Yep. And then after he grabs the rod, he, he sets cinch- it. And he cinches it. And then he locks himself to the rod. And then he sets his feet. And then he steals himself for what's to come next. And at that moment, Brody completes the knot says, hey, I got it. And then the line takes off. And now we're on a fucking race. The shark's taking the line and Quint's wrestling with it. And I love Hooper, right? It's not a shark because he just knows, mm-hmm. right? And so, uh, you know, he starts reeling it in, reeling it in. And and he and Quint stops and he says, you know, this shark is either really smart or really dumb. You know, he's starting to, he's starting to uh, get a feel for this shark and he's starting to getting to know his enemy a little bit. And then uh, he concludes with, well, he's fucking smart. He's under the boat, right? So he's got to prepare. I love when he just gives Brody the reel. Yeah, I'm thinking, (laughs) what the heck? He's going to go right over the side. And did you hear what he says to Hooper? Hooper, help the chief, would (laughs) you? And so they're getting all ready, and it turns out that uh, snaps the line. The line breaks. Yeah. Yep. And so uh, they go at it again, and they're chumming, they're chumming, and Brody's kind of pissed at this point, right? We haven't seen anything. He's getting frustrated. He hates the chum. And as he's chumming, uh, he says, slow ahead. ahead. I can go slow ahead. Why don't you come down here and chum some of this shit? And here's our reveal. One hour and 21 minutes into the film, we see the shark. For real. For real. This is my dad's favorite scene. Again, even when we were watching it, he always quotes this scene yeah and this has become one of the most famous improvised lines in cinematic history uh roy scheider backs up looks at quint with that ominous score building building 
he doesn't, he snaps. I love the way he snaps up into the frame. Mm. Right, but he backs up to talk to Quint, yeah, is what I was but, going with. But I love the way he, he snaps up into the picture frame. Yeah, yeah, oh, absolutely. It's a bunk, right? And what does he say? He says, you're going to need a bigger boat. And uh, Quint's like, what? Quint walks out, and he sees the fin, and he tells Hooper to shut off the engine, and then all we hear is the score. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it begins again. And it builds and it builds and it builds and as it passes by the score does something that it crescendos or does something and uh he kind of looks at it and hooper's like that's a 20 footer and quinn's like no 25 three tons of them is this where they, i know they're getting ready is this where hooper asks uh, brody to go out on the front of the boat <laughs> yes. to get a size compare and i love he's like why, why do you want me to go out there why do you want well, I need something in the foreground. Yeah, to show the, the scale. He's like, fuck you. <laughs> He's a foreground, my ass. But we get the the upbeat music of the let's get ready and the, the and charging the of it. The tone is changing. Yes. And it, so we, we were we were frightened and, and we got that look of the shark, but then the tone changes and all of a sudden everybody springs into action. You, you got Quint going down below and he brings up the, the suitcase. You've got Brody out there. What do you want me to do? Right? He's you, just you got, so... You got Hooper yeah. who's frantic. I am so excited. I know. He runs down, he grabs his camera, and he's trying to do the picture thing or whatever. And then uh, Quint comes up with the harpoon gun, and he says, uh, Hooper, uh, tie this to the end of the barrel. And uh, he tells Brody, steer the boat. And Brody's like, I've never steered a fucking boat in my life. And he goes, just follow my hand, keep it steady. Quint is so calm and cool and collective in this moment that uh, Hooper's like, oh, shit, now I have an opportunity. So he runs down to the bottom of the boat, picks up like a tracking device or something. He wants to prove Quint wrong or, you know, there's whole competition thing going. But I love this bit because uh, the shark's coming and Quint's getting all Hooper. kind of getting excited. Oh, it's coming. Hooper. It's coming. Yeah. And... Uh, Hooper starts tying, uh, he, st- he starts to tie the barrel and he's all, don't wait for me. And it's all a time thing. And Brody's getting impatient now. Kill him. Now. Kill it. And the music's going and he finally gets the shot off and Hooper uh, ties the thing and the barrel goes off. And this begins probably the greatest ad lib, if you will, for something not working in a movie. Those barrels are responsible for the suspense we got and for the way that Spielberg has to tell the story because in reality, the shark never worked, right? And there's thousands of stories of how it never worked. And he thought, well, fuck, what are we going to do? How am I going to show the shark without showing the shark? And voila, the fucking barrels. Yeah, he tells the story with those barrels. Because every time the barrels would go under, you could breathe. And every time they popped right back, you're like, oh shit, there's the shark. Mm-hmm. fucking masterful one other little thing happens right in this moment we get the coast guard calling it's mrs brody and you know i love what we get with this we uh, now have a real glimpse of quint's obsession with where he's going now you know how he is going to end up you know taking them too far and wanting to get the shark himself this is where I feel like Quint stops being Quint, or maybe he adds in the character of Ahab. He is now Ahab hunting Moby Dick. And we don't really get that story until he tells the Indianapolis story, but really, this is his white whale. This is his revenge. I got the Ahab feeling from the moment I met him. 
Absolutely. But he was definitely, uh, Ahab was an inspiration. Yeah, because he uh, was covering up that radio and everything. And the, he was not going to go back for any reason. Spielberg originally wanted Quint's introduction to be Quint in a movie theater watching Moby Dick laughing maniacally at it and were to the point where customers would get up and leave. And uh, the only reason why it didn't happen was because Gregory Peck, who was in Moby Dick, didn't like the movie. So he didn't want to give up the rights. Mm-hmm. So that's why we didn't get that scene. But yes, he is very much a fucking Ahab. And I wasn't aware of it till I read it recently that Spielberg is the uh, radio operator for the Coast Guard. Didn't I tell you that? <laughs> and, and, and as soon as I... As soon as I heard, oh, that's totally Spielberg. You Absolutely. totally hear Spielberg's voice in yeah. that. I didn't know that until Don was pointing that out to me earlier. And then, so they get a barrel in the shark. It takes off, and then it's starting to get dark out. And who? And Brody's like, uh, "What are we? We're quitting, right? We're we're going in." And uh, Quint's like, "No, we got one barrel on him. We're going to stay out here until we find him." Yeah, but we could call in and get a bigger boat. Yeah, you're, you're going to need a bigger boat, right? But I love how the musical score changes, and it totally turns into you know we're on an adventure and we don't feel scared right we're we are excited it's like a pirate movie yes. you know what i mean and that's what john williams kind of referred to it as when he first watched it with no music on it he says this is a pirate movie steven we got to make it you know fun and adventurous and so uh this is the bit where now they're at dinner and then uh quint and hooper start comparing scars and I absolutely love this scene because there's so many things about it uh just hooper's laugh When he says, no, wait, don't tell me, don't tell me, mother, (laughs) right? Uh, And then we find out that Quint was on the USS Indianapolis. This is where the word comes to mind, soliloquy. Sure. That the speech and the story that Quint tells here that Robert Shaw delivers is amazing. I mean, this to me right there is Oscar award winning. The way he tells the story, it's just, it's eloquent and it's moving and you have just a little bit of a score going on. And what really sells it are the expressions of uh, Hooper and Brody as they're hearing this uh, harrowing story. I, I felt like their expressions were almost telling us they finally get it and they finally understand Quint. Because now we as an audience kind of understand him a little bit better. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I, I can see that. I can see that. Yeah, he's been nothing but a crusty old sea dog. The old, And this is the first time we actually see, well, no, not the first time, but probably the second time we see a little bit of humanity in him. I feel like the first time we see a little bit of humanity in Quint is when he uh, talks to Brody after the uh, ox- oxygen tanks spill out. And he, and he says, hey... Hey, Chiffy, next time just ask me which rope to pull. Absolutely. Great call, fucking professor. One of the things that hit me most, I think, during his his whole speech, his whole story, was this is the reason why you'll never catch me wearing a life preserver. I'll never wear, I'll never put on a life jacket again. Which, again, foreshadows a little bit later in the movie when everyone else is putting on the life preservers, you notice he doesn't grab one. Yeah. And so after he tells the Indianapolis story, there's kind of like this awkward moment of silence. We hear some wails, but they all start singing, have a good time. But in the meantime, the barrel popped up and it's swimming toward the boat. You see the little blinking light on it. And uh, it attacks the boat. It's Quint that stops singing first because he hears something and he notices something. 
And then, yeah, and then the you know the, the the shark attacks the boat. The lantern gets dumped onto the deck, starts a fire because Chief was gonna because Brody was calling for a bigger boat, but uh, but Quint, I, Quint says, "Yeah, put out the fire, would you, Chief?" I love how Quint is still the calm Quint. Yeah, would you put out the fire, Chief? Yeah, and then they go out, they kind of shoot at it, and then uh, the power goes out. Yep. And then they have to go outside, and Quint's shooting at it, and Hooper's like, don't waste your time. And then we cut to the next day. It's the next morning, and they're working on the engine. And this, as it's going to turn out, will be their last day on water. And so they're working on the engine, and... uh, And a barrel shows up. What? So they try to bring in the barrel. And uh, the shark comes and, you know, the shark's just kind of toying with them at this point. Well, the question is, when the shark, the barrel comes up, I originally thought when I saw these movies that the barrel had become unattached and that's why they were bringing it in. They knew the barrel was still attached to the shark. I think they were trying to connect it to the boat to stop the shark from swimming away. Yeah, yeah, because the way Quint is bringing in the rope, you can tell that he's barely pulling it at the beginning in case there's tension because that's where the shark is yep. and he could just take off at any second. But the thought is tying the ropes to the cleats and dragging the shark in. But the shark shows up, says cheese. Hi. And (laughs) uh, they put another barrel into him. And so now there's two barrels. And Quint destroys the radio at this point. Because Brody goes in and wants to make another phone call. And then this is where, uh, yeah, Quint destroys the radio. That's and, great. That's just great. You're certifiable, Quint. You're certifiable. And Quint's just like, yeah, 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 yeah. And then Hooper breaks up the tension with boys. Oh, well, boys. boys. Uh, and here comes the shark with the score. And so they get, they rig up another barrel. They shoot it. Uh, and then this is, this is another fun bit because the music changes. Uh, we get that yep. fun piratey yep. up scale yep. thing going on again and even brody's having a good time he's leaning over the side and, and he's, he's smiling, smiling right yeah. well, i love how quint says there's no way he's gonna go under with three barrels no way so they chase him down and uh the barrels pop up and they tie him to the cleats and this is where uh brody almost uh cuts hooper in half with the rope but this is where the shark starts to swim away and it starts pulling the orca and it's just a very dramatic moment. Now, during this time, do you get bothered by the barrel count? No. Because we don't see the first barrel with the, with the with a tracker light, tracking light on it type of thing. We don't see actually what happened to that barrel. But I was more specifically talking about the barrels on deck, that the barrel count on deck goes back and forth. Fluctuates? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've noticed it. But anyway, it is it is such a good time right here when, when these barrels are happening. And then to get him onto the cleats. And then um, this was actually uh, uh, Mythbusters did a Jaws episode years ago. And, and what we'll really talk about is the end when we get there. But this one was actually proven to be plausible. That the shark could pull the boat uh, that size with that the way it was meaning it was a powerful shark. So uh, the shark is pulling it, and finally they're trying to get out of it, but the cleats come off, and um, the shark just kind of swims away, and they are okay for a second. And then Quint gets the idea, fuck it, we're going to go back in, and we're going to lure him into the shallows, and we're going to drown him. But I do love that moment right before they decide that, because after they, they cut 
the cleat loose, and then the shark leaves, and then they are all standing at the stern of the boat. And it's completely quiet, and then in the foreground, the three barrels come up right in front of us. Yep, yep, yep. Because you just won't leave them alone. Won't leave them alone. Can't stay down with three barrels on him. Not with three, he can't. There was another shot where we have the boat, the orca in the background, and the three barrels in the foreground, and we are watching the three barrels approaching the orca. Mm-hmm. Such a beautiful shot. Yeah, yeah. And so the shark starts to chase the orca, and Brody's all relieved, right? Oh, we're going in, we're going in. Uh, but Quint and his ego, uh, they push the orca too hard, and it fucking breaks down. You know, I think it was at this point in the movie that I turned to Julie and I kept thinking, have we hit the mark yet where $10,000 is not going to pay to fix this boat or replace this boat? Oh, in 1974? I'm sure could have bought three boats. You think so? Oh, yeah. I kept thinking he should ask for more money. (laughs) The foreground shot as the orca is heading in where you have Hooper on the left, Quint in the middle, and Brody on the right, and then in the background you see the three barrels. What about the black smoke coming from the boat, too? You know, you have all of this going on, and Quint's just a fucking madman, right? He has the throttle fully down, the, singing a Spanish lady song. The the, the, the gauge, uh, the needle on the gauge is all pegged to the right. Yep, yep. And Hooper looks at Brody and says, hang on, dude, because this isn't going to be good. And finally, it just... It just breaks and, uh, you know, the engine explodes and Brody's like, just turn it off, dude. We're done. We're fucking done. We're done. We're done. We're done. Hmm. I thought it was interesting too. The shark was chasing him, but as soon as the boat died, the shark stopped because it knew the shark wants them. Yeah. And there's a great shot of the orca sitting dead in the water and the barrels moving away from the boat. Mm Mm-hmm. As the Orca slowly sinks, the trio attempts a riskier approach. Hooper enters the water in a shark-proof cage, intending to lethally inject the shark with strychnine via a hypodermic spear. The shark attacks the cage, causing Hooper to drop the spear, which sinks. While the shark thrashes in the tangled remains of the cage, Hooper manages to escape to the seabed. The shark breaks free and leaps onto the boat, subsequently devouring Quint. Trapped on the sinking vessel, Brody shoves a pressurized scuba tank into the shark's mouth and climbs under the crow's nest. He shoots the tank with Quint's rifle, killing the shark with the resulting explosion. Hooper resurfaces and paddles back to Amity Island with Brody, clinging to the remaining barrels. Roll credits. So would you have gone in the shark cage? Yes, that's on my bucket list, bub. Yeah, I've actually heard you can go down to, uh, I think... Uh, the lower part of Africa on the coast and swim with great whites. Yeah. So, let, so we'll do that. All right. I can't wait. Hooper has to use the cage and go down. They, they've run out of ideas and uh, Hooper has the lethal injection. Once we're underwater, we hear the music start signaling here. And sure enough, you can kind of sort of see the shark approaching is, and he's closing in on him. And then we get, get a quick shot up above the water on the orca, and we see the barrels closing in on us. And the barrels go under. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, if you notice, the music still plays as the shark swims by him. As the shark is swimming away, uh, the music fades out, and mm-hmm. we're in silence. He, remo- he removes the cork. And he's getting ready 
and bam. The shark hits him from behind. He cannot hold on to anything. I know. He can't hold on to the fucking tooth. He can't hold on to the fucking dart spear. I mean, this fucking guy, right? One thing that I learned when we went to that musical, Bruce, about the filming of this, I guess they filmed all this underwater cage scene in Australia. They filmed the live action stuff in Australia, but the stuff with the actor and the fake shark was in a tank in L.A. Uh, The footage I think you're referring to is when the shark gets trapped on top of the cage. Um, that's actual footage that that's real that happened in australia well i i read somewhere uh and i was talking about that scene was originally like the book they were going to have hooper get eaten at this point yeah hooper dies in the book and when they were filming the scene they had a dummy in the cage and they couldn't get the shark that they were using to break into the cage and bite the dummy so that's why they never got that scene done so, yeah, Hooper dies in the book, but because of uh, the footage that they got in Australia, uh, there was no diver in the cage. Uh, that rewrote the script. And so Hooper gets to live. That's where I was going, yeah. yeah. So then the cage comes up empty while Hooper flees to the bottom. So they must just assume Hooper's dead. Oh, ab- yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't you? <laughs> since, everybody, since everybody dies. Yeah. This scene, uh, the shark jumps out of the water or leaps out of the water and lands on the back of the boat. And this scene is what scarred me for life. Totally. It's such an oh shit moment. Uh, Quint is sliding down. Uh, He's holding on to something, but then an air tank rolls onto it. He's holding onto the table. And And it's a great looking shot because the hand is in the foreground and you see his pain face in the the back of the shot. And then uh, his hand goes down and then Brody's hand goes down and they clutch hands, but they can't hold on. And Quint slides right into that motherfucker's mouth. I caught something that I had not noticed before. When Quint's in the mouth and being dragged under, I had never seen before. Quint, even that... So yeah, whole thing, he's stabbing the shark with his knife. Yeah, I thought it was the machete or it was, something. It, yeah, it was well, the machete he tried to cut the rope with earlier. Pull, pull her upon, right? Yeah, he he's stabbing him, and then when he bites down, and then the blood pops up when the shark <laughs> swims backwards, which it can't. Uh, Quinn's body's kind of flayed out like that, so he goes down fighting. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now, what's the difference in the book? Uh, in the book, Quint dies because his leg gets entangled in one of the spears. They've just been spearing the shark, and uh, he drowns. He gets pulled underwater, and he drowns. And same with the shark. The well, shark just kind of dies. Well, I guess in Moby Dick, that's how Ahab dies. He gets tied up onto the whale and gets drowned. And then when the whale comes back up, you see the lifeless body tied to the uh, the whale in Moby Dick. In this movie, or in the book, I guess, you know, the way that he drowns, later on when the shark comes up and dies, you can still see Quint's body tied to the shark, just lifeless, being dragged along. Yeah. And this leads us to now, Brody thinks he is all alone. Right. The orca is sinking. Um, the shark comes at him again. Can yeah. You talk about the, the, the sinking boat. Because I was really curious to know about this. So uh, during production, they had two versions of the Orca, one that they would film on and then one that they could sink and resurface and then sink again. And that this is the boat that, that they're doing it on. And one time they were doing a take and it started to sink and they couldn't stop it. And they were rushing to get everybody off the, off the boat and the sound crew uh, one of the guys from the sound crew held up one of his uh, pieces of equipment. And he said, fuck the actors, save the sound department. 
And good thing they did because they won the fucking Academy Award for sound. And so uh, Brody uh, has kind of a uh, square off with the shark, if you will. He The shark uh, comes into the uh, orca and Brody doesn't know what to do so he throws a fucking scuba tank in his mouth and uh he has an idea because he remembered earlier because he remembered that you know you screw around with these things and they'll blow up so he gets quince rifle we get the music it's building building and uh he climbs the crow's nest and the orca is sinking sinking and he's getting lower and closer to the water and the shark it has a has him in his sights. What's that line? We got the music going. He Fire. starts shooting. Fires one shot. Misses. You can see the bullet go through the water, and the Second music shot. starts to build and build and build. And then third shot. Smile, you son of a bitch. Boom. It fucking kills the shark. Now you you quoted MythBusters earlier. They did an episode on that too, or did that was in that episode? What did they conclude about the tank? <laughs> that it wouldn't blow up. That it would probably shoot if they hit the if they hit the tank right. All it would do is maybe shoot down his throat and maybe out the back, mm-hmm. but it wouldn't have that explosion. And in fact, uh, when Benchley and Spielberg were talking about the ending, Benchley was like, "There's no way this could ever happen. I'm a scuba diver. There's, this is implausible. It doesn't. It's not going to work." And then and Spielberg, Spielberg says, "If I have them for two hours, it's not going to matter what I do in the next three minutes." And you know what? That motherfucker was right. Absolutely. After the shark explodes and and we're all relieved, among the flotsam, we see some bubbles appear. Can you imagine Brody's shock? Totally. You know what I mean? Yeah. He thought he was dead. And he even kind of gives like the, oh, thank God, right? Mm -hmm. You know? And then Hooper asks about Quint, and Brody says no. And they just kind of have that moment of, "Eh, well, we kind of knew it was coming maybe. And then Brody says, can we get on those? They're talking about the barrels. And then they start kicking. I love all the birds in the ocean eating the pieces of shark. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then Brody says... uh, I used to hate the water and Hooper's great line. I can't imagine why, you know what I mean? There are so many lines and so many things that I do in my normal day life that I lift right out of this movie. So that's what it did for me. And then we get that one last shot of the shoreline and we finally see them walk up onto the the beach. Shortest ending credit sequence ever. Pretty damn fast. I fucking love it. So yeah. Where was the extra end credit scene? You didn't need it. When you when you have a perfect movie, you just leave it alone. And, you know, for the time being, they did kind of leave it alone until the dipshits at Universal had this great idea. Money grab. Let's make another one. And then let's make another one. In 3D. And then let's make one where the fucking shark roars. All right, we'll talk about that later. Talk about that later. Did you know that Robert Shaw did not make a penny from this movie? Uh, yeah, because uh, his tax problems in uh, the UK. Yeah, I guess he was facing uh, tax evasion with the IRS, so they took all the money from the movie. Yeah. And so that is going to wrap up my favorite movie, Jaws. And so because this is the 100th episode, normally I would let you know comic book guy go into his, his Lord of the Rings thing. But before we do this, I got to know, dude. Are you going to pay the respect and homage to this classic film with 
this comparison. I am, but I feel like I'm still going to get an F from you. And now it's time for John's... Moment. So this is the point in the podcast where I take whatever movie we are reviewing and compare it to the greatest movie series ever made, Lord of the Rings, not the Jaws movie series. Let's just start off with Frodo. Frodo is our lead character who is put on a journey. He fights against the odds to complete a mission. Brody is on such a mission. He fights against the town government uh, trying to shut down the beaches to save lives. He's the one who contacts the Oceanographic Institute that sends Hooper. He takes charge of hiring Quint to hunt down the shark. And in the end, he's the one that has to complete the journey. It's it all falls on his shoulder as the ring bearer. Sam is the one who always stands beside Frodo. He helps him the most along the way, especially when Frodo hits a wall. In Jaws, it's Hooper that helps Brody the most. He's the one who constantly encourages him early on to go on the night boat trip, to cut open the shark, to not end the hunt when the first shark is caught, and so on. Therefore, Hooper is our Sam. Aragorn is a leader, a king, and Quint is the king of the Orca, where a large chunk of the movie takes place. Therefore, Quint is our Aragorn. He's the Aragorn who couldn't let go of the past, the one who made his mission too personal, and it ended up costing him his life. This movie really focuses on our three main characters for the most part, Brody, Hooper, and Quint. And while these characters definitely show qualities consistent with the three main Lord of the Rings characters, they also show qualities of others. At times, especially when Quint isn't around, Brody displays a bit of Aragorn qualities as the leader trying to keep his people safe and rational. Hooper and Quint's arguing do remind me a bit of Merry and Pippin. And Hooper's advice and guidance, as well as his willingness to put his life on the line, gives off a bit of a Gandalf vibe. Quint's stubbornness and quick temper at times gives him some Gimli qualities. The mayor of the town starts off focused on greed over lives. He tries to play down the deaths to keep the beaches open and not to ruin the tourist attractions. It's for that reason I feel Mayor Larry Vaughn is our golem. It's the tourist money that is his precious. He can't see the big picture beyond that. Who is the shark? This is the tough one. It seems like he'd obviously be our big bad Sauron. He's established himself a kingdom in the form of a feeding area, and now he's just trying to keep it. But he's also not doing it for any evil means. He's not trying to take over. He's just doing what the movie portrays sharks as being capable of. He's just attacking to eat, and protect his territory. So no, he's not Sauron. For the shark, I have to reach all the way back to the Hobbit and choose another character who took over a kingdom, then fought to keep everything he had claimed within. Bruce the shark is Smog the dragon. In the Hobbit, Smog took over the lonely mountain from the dwarves because he craved gold. The shark took over the waters around Amity, to make it his feeding grounds. Just as Smog declares himself king under the mountain, the shark 
is the king under the water. So what is the precious? What is the one ring? In any movie we compare, it's the thing that is both powerful and corrupting. It serves its master and corrupts our hero. And in the end, our hero has to overcome its influence to save the day. In Jaws, my pick for the one ring is the water around the island. Brody has a fear of the water. Quint is obsessed with what happened to him in the water. And Hooper is drawn to the water. And the shark, for the most part, is in control of the water. Our hero doesn't let his fear stop him, the overcoming the corruption, which leads him to winning in the end. And there you have it, my comparison between Jaws and Lord of the Rings. Bring on the grades. Me? You? F- fine. Mm. I got to say that there's not that many uh, characters for us to, uh, you know, put up against uh, Lord of the Rings. And I, 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 I just don't think there's a strong correlation here. I'm, I'm going to give you a big fat C minus. Wow, C minus. Look at the, uh, the perplexed look on his face. He's like, motherfucker. I thought I pulled out a good one with Smog. But Smog wasn't in the trilogy. It wasn't in the greatest trilogy of all time. I said greatest movie series. And when I can say movie series, I consider Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit under that blanket. Not a, not a bad comparison to Smog the Dragon. I'll give you that one. I'll give you that one. Um, and I guess technically it falls within the realm of what you're talking about, I suppose. Um, yeah, there aren't a lot of characters, uh, to compare. And that's why I was really kind of looking forward to, because most of the, uh, Lord of the Rings things are, you're just comparing characters, right? But if there's not as many characters, how are you going to do it? Um, I thought the water was an interesting take on the ring. Uh, I thought you did, uh, the best that you could. I'll give you a little bit of bonus points for the smog, even though I think it's cheating a little bit, but that's just my own opinion. I'm going to give you a B buddy. And that was John's. Moment. All right, what do you guys think? You guys ready to rate this flick? I suppose I could rate this flick. John, you want to rate this flick? I'm ready to take a bite out of it. All right. Uh, Professor, how do we rate our movies? We rate our movies on a scale of one to five fucks. Five fucks is a movie that we think is cinematic gold. Hey, you want to watch Jaws? Fuck yeah, I do. A one fuck movie is it's one and done. You don't want to see it. No. You know what? Fuck that. And what's a zero? A zero fuck movie is, oh, for shit's sake. What the hell? Why would you make me watch this? I want two hours and seven minutes of my life back. Or in other words, we just don't give a fuck. All right. So when I found out that we were finally going to be doing Jaws, I was really looking forward to watching the movie. And I got to say, watching it, It has never disappointed me. It is such a rich watch. The story is so strong. The cinematography is so good. And what the music does in conjunction with the movie, oh my gosh, how Spielberg is constantly building tension with the movie is just so fantastic. When we finally get that good look at the shark as he swims underneath the boat and you have Brody and Hooper heading up to the front of of the boat, of the orca, and we see and we see uh, Hooper's foot slip when we know that the shark is right on the other side, right there in the water. It's a, for just a moment, and I just love 
what Spielberg does in building his tension. When we have everybody going out in that little mini armada of boats, you know, the, those dozen or so boats and everybody going out, and you think, eh, you know what? It, it's comical in a way, and it's in the middle of the day, and they're all together, so it's probably going to be okay. And then when do we get to see somebody else go out? It's when Hooper and Brody go out, and it's at night. And they're all alone, and it's just them. I love how Spielberg, you know, just makes the tension work so much. And I think another really important thing that Jaws is really good at, it lets us see that, you know, people that have, you know, like small problems that are maybe kind of inconsequential, but, you know, that everybody's human. And 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 even though we may feel small or unimportant, you know, we are capable that maybe we can do really great things. And we watch this happen with Brody. And I just love having the story arc of Brody and how he builds himself to the end of the movie. It's such a satisfying watch. And I just love watching this movie every time. It's a solid five fuck movie. Five fucks from the professor. I'll go next. In my opinion, Jaws is a perfect film. For all the reasons I just got done talking about. Cinematic gold. Five fucks. That's, that's your review? Wow. So here goes my rating. Let's start with the music. John Williams' score is legendary. It sets the mood in every scene. And it is, without question, one of the most recognizable themes to come out of cinema. Even folks who have not even seen the original Jaws recognize the Thump Thump tune as related to Jaws. The trinity of Roy Scheider, Robert Shaw, and Richard Dreyfuss were more than capable of carrying this movie. Each one brings a specific quality to the movie that, in my opinion, is irreplaceable. My favorite is Robert Shaw's Quint. He stole every scene he was in and the portrayal he produced gave another reason this movie should be taken seriously. In many ways for me, the movie was about Quint versus the shark in a Moby Dick-style epic struggle. This is further illustrated for those who read the book. Even with the changes made in the movie version, you still get a clear sense of that intended theme. Jaws is typically labeled as a horror film but I feel it transcends that classification. Besides jump scares and a bit of gore, the suspense and the realism is what I love about this movie and that elevates it over any typical slasher-type film. I do have some minor issues with the film, but overall, it's just about perfect for me. Now, I can't give it a five only because there are other movies out there that I care, you know, that I like just that much more. Or if I had to choose between two movies, I would watch a different movie first. It's for those reasons that I'm giving Jaws 4.75 fucks. 4.75 fucks from the comic book guy. Five perfect fucks from the professor and myself, which gives Jaws an average of 4.9 fucks, which now puts it in the number one spot with... The Dark Knight and Raiders of the Lost Ark. And it's slightly better than Ghostbusters and Die Hard. And it's slightly worse than nothing. (laughs) 
All right, so that is going to wrap it up for this 100th episode. Uh, if you would like to know which movie we are going to review next, please check out our website. Uh, and speaking of which, hey, John, where can they find us? Well, they can still find us at our website, threeguysinaflick.com, where we will post our show notes. All of our podcasts are there. Our, you know, We throw up movie trivia, all of our teasers, and anything else we can think of. You can also find us at any place that hosts podcasts, as well as all of social media. All right. I just want to thank Zach, Ronnie, and Jill for always listening. Keep on listening. Thanks, Zach. Thanks, Ronnie. Thanks, Jill. And I want to thank everyone who has listened to these 100 episodes and who have supported us and suggested movies uh, over this time that we've been doing this. Something else I want to point out, that not only are we doing our 100th episode, but what other big thing happened today, Don? We reviewed Jaws, and I gave it a 5, and you gave it a 4.75 because you don't know what a good movie is? No. The other big news is today... We hit 20,000 downloads. 20,000 downloads. So definitely want to thank every one of our listeners for helping us reach that achievement. All right. Very good. And be sure to pass this along to a friend. If you keep listening to them, we'll keep recording them. For Three Guys in a Flick, I'm Don. I'm John. And I'm Ken. Thanks for listening. finish it because they stop one by one remember let's try that but you also you said on the second one by instead of on that oh it is on it's on on the second verses it's Uh, on professor pointed like donkey kong boom 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 show me the way to go home boom 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 i'm tired and i want to go to bed i had a little drink about an hour ago and it's gone right to my head wherever i may roam by land or are we supposed to say on land or yeah if if we fuck up the weathers or weather let's just get through it okay and just be done with it what do you think sure yep okay so, so for this real this time this this one's for real listeners for real for reals 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 reals, yeah. reals, reals. i love it true to the <laughs> true to the content <laughs> you know what we still have to review this fucking movie um and this 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 uh and this brings me and Hooper tell <laughs> it's so much in here. It's probably a good intro into the next two paragraphs. Is it is it fucker? Is it a good I don't know why I started yelling. I'm just kidding, buddy. I wanted to hear more about that. All right, we'll get into them. <clears throat> Will we? Will we? See, I'm already editing. This is horrible. Well maybe we'll do it after afterwards. All right, all right. Thanks, buddy. Today See, you good. you could be a little bit more fucking... Uh, supportive. Supportive. <laughs> Quint prepares to sever the line to prevent the transform from being pulled out of the cleats. Transom. 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 Did I put an F in there? You put an R. Fuck you! Quint, prepare, Quint prepares to ser- sever. I hate you all. So... Sorry. Now I'm throwing it all off. What the fuck was that? It's for that reason I feel Mary later.
It's for that reason I feel Mary late Mary. Mayor. Of course you did. All right, fuck off. Good night.